Well, Sam is out, as you know, and Sam asked me to preach on a favorite topic. It has to do with mountains. I love mountains. I grew up in Kentucky, and we, didn't ha we had hills, we didn't have mountains. And so having moved across the Rockies and now on the West Coast, I love mountains, and I'll share a little bit of that love with you as we go. Um, I'm going to be preaching from the ESV Bible. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Peter, I've put all mine on a piece of paper to make it more convenient, but you can open up your hard copy or your electronic devices. And I want to set you up. We're going to start off, we will be preaching through Mark. Um, and if you can put up the slide, um, it's got a cool map. My title is Summit Showcase, and we're going to be covering the mountaintop transfiguration of Christ. I, as a former teacher, I taught for 30 years, I love maps and charts, as many as I can sneak in. You're going to see some photos. And so the setting is over here, this little ridge in the, the Golan Heights, and on this ridge is the highest point, and that would be Mount Hermon. That's going to be our focus. And so here we have the Sea of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi, and our preaching, Jesus has recently been in Caesarea Philippi, and then we're going to shift our attention to the mountaintop, Mount Hermon. I'm so excited. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter. Peter is in jail in Rome, awaiting his execution. And he's going to reflect back onto a mountaintop experience. He's not going to reflect back onto the time he walked on water and then began to sink. He's not going to reflect back on the time that he was so bold that he took out his sword and he lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant when Jesus got arrested. He's going to think back to a time when he was on a mountaintop. Here's what he writes, 2 Peter 1. 13 through 19, this is 30 years after Jesus' ministry and resurrection. This is a post-resurrection reflection, Peter's last letter before he's executed for the gospel. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Once again, Peter is writing to believers and he's reflecting back on this mountaintop experience. And he's, he's using this experience to assure his readers, I've seen the glory of Christ. Peter's going to go on in 2 Peter to warn about false prophets. He's going to talk about the day of the Lord to come, and that it is sure and certain. And we today await that certainty. So we're in that post-resurrection position of waiting. And now, if we can shift to the, uh, the passage from Mark... Um, could you back it up a little bit, just to let you know, 
that when I prepared for this message, I looked at our passage from Mark, and I'm going to cover the transfiguration. But Matthew and Luke also cover the transfiguration. John, for whatever reason, chose to not write about it. I love how we can harmonize the Gospels, and I will be inserting additional material from the other Gospel writers to, to fill out the picture. But for now, if you will turn to Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read through the text without commentary, and then go back over it again and add elements from Mark and Luke, and then unpack a few things. So if you'd advance to the slide... We'll read through the text, and then I hope to guide you through the answers to six questions. So for those of you that like to take notes or like to see how much longer is this going to be, you can see, you can gauge by how many numbers are left. Fair? So here is the Mark passage without insertions from Matthew or Luke. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that, the first, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Is that what your Bible says? Did I cover all the Mark passage? Okay. So when I go over this again, I'm going to start working in Matthew and Luke for more interesting details. Okay, so why a mountain? Why the three disciples? Why the light show? Why Moses and Elijah? Why keep it secret? And then ultimately the application, the way I'm going to present this, is saving some of that for later. Why is this important for us today when we reflect back on it? Well, let me begin again, now inserting Matthew and Luke. He said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the power of God after it, excuse me, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. No, no changes here. The time frame, this is not alluding to Christ's post-resurrection triumphant arrival in the clouds. This is referring to, within a week's worth of time, Jesus is telling the disciples, you're going to see the power of God from on high. You're going to get a little dose. It's very necessary because the disciples have just been smacked down. This is, a, last week Sam preached upon the, the idea that Jesus said, the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die, he's going to suffer and die. This is after Peter says, you are the Messiah. And he's you know, commended for saying that. Jesus follows that up by saying the Messiah is going to die. 
and you need to take up your cross and follow after me. They're very discouraged. What kind of a kingdom is it where the king shows up and he gets executed? They don't completely understand this rising from the dead stuff. So the big picture is that Jesus is going to give them a glimpse of his glory, his post-resurrection glory, so that they can endure the uncertainty, the confusion, and the suffering that's to come with the cross. It's a little glimpse to get them through. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus took them with him, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain. Luke inserts that the purpose was to pray. A high mountain to pray by themselves. Jesus had done this many times. Now he's inviting people up with him to pray. So the question is, why a mountain? I'll give you answers if you'd like to write these down or just go along for the ride, think about them. My answer, God uses exalted landforms, high and lifted up, to reveal himself. We might wonder, why did God choose mountains? He could have chose a valley, could have chose a beautiful beach. How about green pastures? How about still waters? These would have all been appropriate biblical places to meet and pray. He chose a mountain. Now, I told you I love mountains, so I'm super excited about mountains. Mountains in Scripture... What I prepared for you is some highlights to pique your interest on mountains. The ark rested on a mountain after the flood, Genesis 8:4. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on a mountain, Genesis 22:2. God appeared as a burning bush to Moses on a mountain, Exodus 3:1 and 2. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on a mountain, Exodus 19 and 20. God sent down heavenly fire on Elijah's sacrifice on a mountain. If you're interested in this, I can tell you the names of the mountains, and, and, but it's, it's fascinating. We're about halfway done. God sent down, uh, God put blessings and curses on mountains for Israel, Deuteronomy 11:29. The temple was built on a mount, 2 Chronicles 3:1. Jesus was tempted by the devil on a mountain, Matthew 4:11. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain. <laughs> Matthew 5:1. Jesus prayed to his father alone on a mountain, Matthew 6, 46. Jesus appointed his 12 disciples on a mountain, called them up to a mountain to appoint them, ordain them, uh, Mark 3, 13. Jesus gave his end times Olivet discourse from a mountain, the Mount of Olives, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21. Jesus ascended to heaven from a mountain, Acts 1, 12. Mountains are super cool. I want you to get into the mindset of the disciples being taken up on a mountain in a pre-flight ancient culture where they didn't know anything. They couldn't look down. I mean, you could climb a tall tree to look down. When you climbed a mountain, it was as if you were piercing up, rising through the heavens to a high point. It's interesting that in uh, Genesis 11, when the people want to build a tower to, to, to make a name for themselves, they want to pierce the heavens and be like God as they rise higher and higher. Did you know that at the time that the disciples are climbing up there, the ancient Greeks and then kind of uh, embraced by the Romans, they took over the Greek uh, religion, that Mount Olympus, the highest point in Greece, was supposed to be the paradise where the 12 gods dwelled. Having kicked out the titans, surpassed them, now the 12 premium gods of, of, of Greek mythology now reside on the top of Mount Olympus. There's something heavenly about mountains in the pre-flight culture. There's something marvelous about mountains. How many people have been on a mountaintop? 
The air is thin, it feels remote, and the views are spectacular. What you don't want on a mountaintop are clouds. Clouds bring danger. My dad and I used to climb mountains. My dad got the permits for us years ago, many years ago, and we climbed the highest mountain in the lower 48. It was Mount Whitney. Anybody been up on Mount Whitney? It's really fun. When, okay, uh, Mount Whitney is uh, 14,500 feet. You get a headache from lack of oxygen. And all the way up, this is an easy hike, but it's a lot of switchbacks, and there are signs posted. If there's a storm on the mountain, if clouds gather, get off the mountain. Now, it's a long hike up there. The, the nature of Mount Whitney is that you've got cliff faces that face to the east, but the backside is kind of sloped. They actually have a shack built up there at 14,500 feet, and the shack is coated, covered with lightning rods. If a, if a storm came in, you'd be so close to the heavens, so close to the clouds, that it's dangerous and you could be electrocuted. That's, that's the nature of them. Okay, did you know that there's a mountain in the Cascades called the Lightning Rod of the Cascades? It's called Mount Tielsen. It looks down on Diamond Lake. Uh, me and some other dads, three other dads and their boys, decided to climb Mount Tielsen. It was going to be a great outing. The last part of Mount Tielsen is a rock climb, about 80 feet up. And it's this thin little spire. We had tried to do this mountain hike uh, weeks before, and then the weather was inclement, so we, we had to cancel. So then we had our next opportunity, and sure enough, it's raining. I forget what month it was, but it's raining. We decided to go anyway. So we drove through. The rain stopped as we drove up into the mountains, about a two-hour drive, Diamond Lake, Mount Tielsen. And uh, so we weren't being rained on, but there were clouds in the sky as we approached it. When we got to the summit, there's this little ridge called Chicken Ridge, for those that don't want to go any further. And then there's that last 80 feet of spire. It is so cool. When you drive to Mountain Lake, you can see Mount Thielsen. There's little, like this little stick of a lightning rod sticking up into the sky. And uh, so we, climb, we, we get out there, we climb up, and we get to the mountain, and we discover there's this nov uh, novice mountain climbing crew from Eugene. They've got helmets, they've got ropes, they have all this climbing gear. It is not a technical mountain, and they're just basically making us all wait. So a few other people on this Saturday are waiting, and now... It's starting to rumble around us some more. The clouds that had dissipated in the Cascades are now coming back. And we're thinking, are we going to have to bail on this? And uh, finally, these guys come down just in time. It's rumbling around us, so we scramble up. And it wasn't very careful. The idea was that we're going to teach our sons. These are dads with their sons. Son, here's how you climb rocks. And here's how I purchase the right hold. And it's three points always on the rock, you know. And then you move and you climb up there. None of that happened. We basically just scrambled to the top. Everybody found their own way. Nobody fell. And so we're up there. <clears throat> this is wonderful. Enough room for eight people on the top of this little thing. And then another couple comes up. And uh, the girl had red hair, as I remember. And so, can you take a picture of us up on the top of Mount Thielsen? Yes. So she's up there, and then one of the boys says, Dad, look at her hair. And her hair was standing up. There was no wind. You know what that means? Static electricity. Let's get off of the mountain. It's rumbling. And so we do. We're, we're coming down, and a cloud moves in. And then we get in this really fine, pelted hailstorm. Suddenly, we, we can only see each other as silhouettes in the darkness. And uh, it's, we're, we're sliding down scree. It was all pretty safe, but it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. No lightning strikes, just hail. It was so cool. It's those kinds of stories that you live through. But uh, the, 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 the point of it here is 
Mount, uh, clouds on mountains are not a good thing. They spoil the view, you can't see where you're going, and they bring storm, uh, turbulence, electricity, electromagnetism, and lightning. It's very dangerous. There's something about the danger, the height, the heavenliness, and the danger of mountains that make them so awesome. King David wrote about mountains. He said, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, Psalm 36, 5 through 6. The prophet Isaiah wrote about mountains. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it, Isaiah 2, 2. And the apostle John wrote about mountains. He said, an angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's Revelation 21.10. And the writer of Hebrews adds that that city will rest on Mount Zion, Hebrews 12.22. Isn't it cool? Mountains are so cool. This church should have a mountain climbing ministry, don't you think? It really should. Question two, why the three disciples? Why not all 12? I have a simple answer first, and then I'll give you a spiritual answer. The simple answer is that when you're climbing a high mountain, it's difficult to take a large party. I know from experience. On another occasion, a bunch of church folks went out on a, on a uh, camp out at Lake of the Woods. John, who loves mountains, said, let's do a Saturday. Guys, let's do a day hike up to Mount McLaughlin. I've been up there many times. And uh, 29 people decided to go. It was supposed to be after breakfast. We go hike up. We come back down. We're there for dinner. Everything's going to be great. Right? No clouds. That was a good thing. Be, as we are at the trailhead, and I'm warning everyone, okay, look, every year people get lost on this mountain. Every year, search and rescue has to come and rescue them. Don't let that happen to you. Go up in groups of five. There should be an adult in every group. And all these warnings, even how the nature of how you get lost on the mountain. I said that the ridge comes from the east, and then there's this scree field that's really tempting to just, you know, ski down, slide down. But if you do that... You're going to go below the, the trail to your east, and you're going to have to traverse up and then back onto the ridge. So beware. Beware. So um, we're supposed to be back before dinner. Um, it, it fell apart in these ways. Some of the groups were slower than the others. Some of the young men were faster than the others and more ambitious, and they went off on their own in the wrong direction. So two young men spent the night on the mountain and indeed were found by search and rescue airplanes the next day. And, man, we, we worried all night. We were up early for a new morning hike that doubled our hike, so we're back around the mountain again on the Pacific Crest Trail looking for them. And another group decided to summit, even though they were, like, way behind, so they got back after dark, like three hours later. So it kind of fell apart. It's difficult to get a string of people all together up onto a mountaintop. You're walking single file. It's dusty. The practical thing here, why the three disciples? Because the two would be too many. Somebody's probably slow, and so he, maybe he decided on three of the fastest guys. I don't know. That's practical. Okay, so why not two? Moses went up on a mountain, and he took Joshua with him. Why three instead of two? Joshua did not go all the way up to the top, but he went up part of the way. There's kind of a spiritual reason for three. The answer is that Jesus chose to train a select trio of men to lead his kingdom ministry after his departure. 
departure. So this was a training mission. This was a training climb. He's going to show these guys some special things about his person and his mission. Why three? They were common guys. These were fishermen. These were not alpine uh, athletes. They're fishermen. But according to Deuteronomy 19.15, Moses says that for something, a charge to be made or a truth claim to be made, there need to be two or three credible witnesses to confirm that charge. Jesus makes sure to take three. Three is better than two. Two or three credible witnesses. He's taking these three witnesses up onto the mountain to see what he's going to do. They're going to bring back the eyewitness testimony of that. And I started off with Peter, right, writing about. We, we're not casting, you know, favorite myths here. We have seen and beheld his majesty and glory. We heard the voice of God on that mountain. So he was being prepared for this ministry. He was being prepared to endure the uh, the Messiah being crucified on a cross, and then Peter himself being martyred in the future. So three credible witnesses. These three common men are going to be transformed into world changers. They were elite. It's interesting that these three guys are always listed first in the apostles, Peter, James, and John. They were exclusively included in the raising of Jairus' daughter, if you recall some of these things. Where no one else came into the room, they believed the daughter to be dead. The synagogue leader, Jairus, had sent for Jesus to heal. Jesus was delayed. He shows up. The daughter's dead. He brings these three in. They raise the daughter from the dead. They've already seen that. Now they're on top of the mountain, about to see something spectacular. These three will also be the three invited to pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. After the resurrection, these three are going to be the people that Paul goes to. Paul is converted with an experience, knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus. And so he was a persecutor of the church, and now he wants to be in with the church folk, and in fact is appointed as an apostle. And he goes to these three, and he receives the right hand of fellowship from them. We see them all over the place. They're interesting. Peter was bold enough to say to Jesus, command me to walk on water, and he did. And then he lost his faith, and he sank. Jesus had to pull him up. James and John were so fired up about Jesus and the power that when the Samaritans rejected him, he said, Lord, command us, they didn't have the power, command us to call down fire from heaven and smoke these people. And Jesus rebukes them. But these guys are fired up. Jesus was be the, he would be the first to preach after Pentecost in Jerusalem. What was it, 5,000 converts that day? 3,000, I forget, but amazing. So this fisherman is now transformed into an amazing gospel preacher evangelist. James would be the first to die as a martyr, a martyr, and John would be the last to die in exile on an island. These three guys are amazing. Jesus was investing his time with the, this elite Navy SEAL kind of team of, of evangelists and ministers. And Jesus is still calling people. They don't have to be elite. They're common people that he transforms into world changers. And as I look around, you never know who God is going to use because he can take common, ordinary, broken things and show them a glimpse of his glory and his purpose and lift you up and empower you into ministry, and it could be world-changing. So three disciples. Again, the answer was Jesus chose to train a select trio of men to lead his kingdom ministry after his departure and they would surely rock the world. Back to our text. 
I have to add now, Luke said this. As he was praying, and he was praying, this is Jesus, and he was transfigured before them. So we don't get that mark alone, but Jesus is praying to the Father, and as he's praying, this transformation comes over, a metamorphosis. He was transfigured before them, Matthew adds, and his face shone like the sun. It's not just his clothes, his face shone. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white. Luke uses the word dazzling, like vibrant, shimmering, diamond-like. Matthew says, white as light. Remember, this is pre-electrical incandescent bulbs or LED bulbs. The only kind of light they would see would be starlight, sunlight, reflected moonlight, or torchlight, firelight, maybe lightning light. Not light coming from a person's face and clothes. Glowing. As no one on earth could bleach them. And here's the point. It is an unearthly whiteness. So why the light show? My answer, God uses light as a visible sign of his glory, majesty, and power. A visible sign. In chapter 8 of Mark, we've just read that the Pharisees have seen Jesus heal and feed 5,000, um, give sight to the blind, paralytics are up walking, but they say, give us a sign. These miracles, these healings and these feedings were not sufficient to them. They wanted a heavenly sign. They wanted something bright and unearthly. And it's interesting that Jesus has taken up these favorite three, and he's giving them a dose of the sign that the Pharisees want. Like, that's fine. That, that's great that you're healing and you're feeding, but what about the heavens? What about the end times? What about the clouds opening up? And the kingdom is initiated. Jesus is going to give the disciples, I better turn that around, a little glimpse of this sign that he denied to the Pharisees. I have a little bit to share with you on light. God is called light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We read in 1 John 1.5. God is called the Father of lights, James 1.17. God dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. In God's light do we see light, Psalm 36.9. This is more than just electromagnetic radiation. It's not just photons. In the Bible, light represents God's visible glory and his personal attributes. Yes, it's a metaphor, but it represents something about God. His magnificence, his beauty, his majesty, his awesome power, his purity, like bright light just seems so pure. There's no corruption in it. It represents his honesty, his goodness, his wisdom, and even his love. Think about light. If you were stuck in a cave, I love caves, by the way, too. Grew up in Kentucky, been in Mammoth Cave. I love caves. I love the lowest places. I love the highest places. If you're stuck in a cave and your batteries go out and your flashlight... Somebody comes along with a flashlight. That's the kind of light. This is not unearthly light, but this is saving light. It exposes your lostness, and you can, you can find your way out. It's a good thing. Isaiah spoke of light, Isaiah 60, 1 through 3 and 19. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. 
Jesus is this light. Jesus quoted Isaiah to speak of himself as the light in the beginning of his ministry in Capernaum. In Matthew 4, 6, we read, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And that would be Jesus. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John happens to use the light metaphor 23 times in his gospel. That's triple that of any other gospel. John loves light, loves this metaphor of light. And you know what? John had seen Jesus in the light, Jesus radiating light from himself, not just a metaphor, a physical reality. Amazing. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. The glory of God gives the new Jerusalem its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. We find that in Revelations 21, 23. There are probably more passages that make the case, that proof text the fact that God is light and Jesus is that light. God is spirit, can't be seen. He uses light to reveal himself metaphorically, but Jesus is the light in flesh. The disciples were eyewitnesses to the shock and awe nature of the Shekinah glory. When God reveals himself through fire and cloud, there's something unearthly and heavenly. Jesus is that thing, that person. And it's not an external light. We're not talking about a spotlight on the Messiah, external spotlight. It's an internal light radiating out. It's deeper, more unearthly. It's amazing. It's awesome. Why Moses and Elijah up there? Okay. I asked the question. Well, well let's go back. We've already read, uh, this is verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Luke adds this interesting and really important detail. And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Let there be no doubt that we're talking about the crucifixion to come, the rejection of the Messiah to come. This, this is all necessary. It's not, here's the glory time, let's take over the kingdom, let's usher it in, you know, game over, eternal state commences. There's something about what lies ahead, the path of pain to the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. Those things are to come. But why Moses and Elijah? Why not Enoch, right? Enoch was lifted up. He might be up there in kind of like a heavenly realm. Why can't he be on the mountain? Why not Noah? Noah was righteous, it says. The Scripture says he, he walked with God. Uh, he was on the ark. He was the new beginning. Why is it not Noah up there? Well, what about the, the father of the faith? Abraham, called out of Ur, given a promised son. Uh, why not David, King David? Just kind of curious. Now, we know that Jesus is, he, he, why he chose the elite three He's got three witnesses. He's got ministry partners that are going to change the world, leading the, the kingdom ministry. My answer to this, why Moses and Elijah? God uses chosen pyrotechnic mountain men to affirm the supremacy of Christ and his mission on the cross. They represent the law and the prophets, but they are pyrotechnic mountain men. Yes, 
Okay. Can you show? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm at the cube, uh, Brad. I have slides. Let's back it up. Let's talk about the mountains again. Just to get, uh, so gonna, there's going to be fireworks on the top of the mountain here, and yet uh, uh, some of the commentaries if, in your study Bibles might say Mount Tabor. And in fact, there's a, there's a monastery at the top of Mount Tabor, which is near Jerusalem. And, uh, but this is, a, this is a puny little mountain. This is like Mount Baldy in Grants Pass. It's about 1,800 feet. And they do have a church up there called the Church of the Transfiguration. And it looks like maybe tour buses could go up there, but that's really not, uh, the, the, the scholars don't favor Mount Tabor. They favor, the next slide please, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 9,166 feet. You got to get, a high mountain means you got to get more than 1,800 feet tall, more than Mount Baldy. Mount Hermon is the highest place, like I said, in the Golden Heights in that region. It has a view and it has a purpose for Jesus and his disciples here. This is close to Caesarea Philippi. Just one more quick, back to the very first slide for, for the geeks of, I, I love the maps and charts. One more back to the very beginning. Yeah, okay, so here we are. Jesus has been up ministering in Tyre and Sidon. Most recently, he's been in Caesarea Philippi. Look at how close, um, even though after six days they go up to the top of Mount Hermon, makes more sense that he's staying in this region and going up there. If they're going up to pray, they don't, it's not like the day hike that I tried on Mount McLaughlin. You go up and come back, you're back in time for dinner. They went up there to pray. These are lengthy prayers to the Heavenly Father. Doesn't make sense they'd go down to Mount Tabor, which is down here, right? So I'm, I'm just agreeing with the, the commentators that favor Mount Hermon, and it's taller. It's cooler. Thank you. <laughs> Let's go to the next mountain slide. And the next mountain slide ties in with this scene. These pyrotechnic mountain men know this mountain. Anybody know the name of it? Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, if you want to turn here, you can. I'm going to be jumping into Exodus because we're talking about why Moses and Elijah, or else you can just listen to me read it. Moses had dealt with fire before. He'd seen the burning bush. He'd seen the pillar of fire and cloud that hovered over the tabernacle, filled it at the consecration of the tabernacle, filled it. And then hovered above it and led the people of Israel through the wilderness. Amazing. He'd already seen that. When Moses, Moses would go to the tent of meeting, he would come out and his face would be aglow. So he was a pyrotechnic mountain man. This is Exodus 19. Listen to this and just appreciate the mountain stuff with me, if you will. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is also very cool. Supernatural trumpet blast. What would that have... Any brass players in there, in here, just, uh, you just wonder. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now the Lord had descended on it in fire. I kind of just want to read in a lower voice as I do it. <laughs> Right? The fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. <laughs> and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, what is the trumpet doing here? It's just, it's like the underscore, right? Let's put some heavy brass in here, let's have some high brass in here. <laughs> things are shaking, things are just going crazy. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, when things shake on a mountain, I have some experience with this too. 
if there's an earthquake and you're on top of a mountain, things start to shake loose, and because of the slopes, they roll down. I can remember climbing with a bunch of church friends. Again, this church needs a mountain climbing ministry, I'll say it. But we were up at the top of Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens had, if you're familiar with that, Mount St. Helens actually woke me up in 1980. I was sleeping on a couch, college kids sleeping on a friend's couch in May, and something woke me up, an explosion woke me up. And I woke up, what the heck was that? Sounded like a sonic boom. Things kind of shook, what, and I went back to sleep because, you know, I stayed up late, and I figured I'm going to read about this in the news. Sure enough, Mount St. Helens blew, and it was over 200 as the crow flies miles from Bellingham where I was a college student. I got awakened by an explosion 200 miles away. That is pretty awesome, and I wanted to see that mountain. So here, me and a group of friends are up on the, the southern ridge, or the, yeah, the rim looking down at the northern face that was blown out, and all this steam is coming out. In the 30 years since, there's like an 800-foot dome that's rebuilding itself inside the crater. The mountain lost over 1,300 feet of its top, just blasted away. This is an awesome picture of violence, geological violence. And at one time, we can see down there around this dome rising up, there's steam, because it's still, it's, it's not active, but it's not completely dormant. It's steaming. And then I looked over on the sides, and I thought, oh, gosh, steam, steam is coming out of the sides of the craters, the crater. And it wasn't steam. It was a rock slide. And when, you know, when rocks start sliding, they kick up dust. And it's like this big cloud over here. So I want you to get in the, the frame of mind that Moses is not up there just with the fire. In an earthquake, rocks are coming down. This would make a great movie. <laughs> Boulders are tumbling down. Watch out for the rocks. So he's up there managing it all with coolness. And he goes back up again. He comes down off the mountain that's been trembling. He goes to the people and he says, here's what God told me. It says in the scripture that he wrote it down. And then it gets kind of confirmed, consecrated. They give sacrifices. And Moses and Joshua are going to go back up there, kind of like saying, yeah, you spoke to us, Lord. Now the people, do you know that the Lord spoke to us? And now we're going to go back up there and ratify this covenant. So cool. He goes up there again. This is Exodus 24. This is Moses' second ascent. Uh, Exodus 24, 15 through 17. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Joshua had come up part of the way with him. Now Moses is up there alone. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That leads to trouble down in the camp, right? This is when Aaron and the people, they build the, the golden calf. So anyway, why Moses and Elijah? Because Moses clearly is a pyrotechnic mountain man, right? So what about Elijah? Did you know that Elijah was taking on the prophets of Baal, 400 of them apparently, and they're up there calling to the heavens that Baal would send down a sign from heaven on their sacrifices. They're slashing themselves. They're doing some kind of a chant. And Elijah, he puts this, his own sacrifice out there, and he pours several pitchers of water. It's a soaking wet sacrifice. And then he calls down fire from heaven, and God devours the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. I'll give you the name of that one. Never been up that mountain. But Elijah is also a pyrotechnic expert. He also knows he spoke with God in a cave on Mount Horeb. 
Did you know that Elijah, a couple times, these are probably lower mountains, but was on a mountaintop, and King Azahiah, I think it was, sent up uh, soldiers, a group of 50 soldiers, arrest Elijah, that prophet. And Elijah's up on the top of the mountain. He says, I'm not coming. Here comes fire. 50 guys are dead. The commander goes back and says, we tried to get Elijah, but we got smoked by fire from heaven. Another group of 50 goes up. Same thing happens. Fire from heaven. Elijah knows about uh, pyrotechnics. So finally, they plead with him, would you please come? And he does. And he kind of relents, and he goes, and he talks with the king. Um, Elijah went on to be exited from the world by being taken up, if you recall this, by chariots of fire, angelic chariots of fire. There's something about these two guys. <laughs> Pyrotechnic mountain men. And they both prefigured Jesus, and they both looked forward to Jesus the Messiah. Moses, and this is from Deuteronomy 18, said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I'll say that again. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the final prophet from among his brothers, not just one in a series of prophets. He's the final prophet. He's the final high priest. After Jesus' sacrifice of himself, there's no need for any other sacrifices. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Elijah was mentioned by the prophet Malachi when he said, this is Malachi 4, 5 and 6, this is 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The angel said to Zechariah, the father uh, of John the Baptist, and he, John, will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So these guys are in this thick, Moses and Elijah. They are the forerunners. Oh, you, you can go ahead. Uh, you can blank that so we don't keep looking at Mount Sinai. I'm, I'm done talking about Mount Sinai. Isn't it interesting that Jesus takes up his friends, James and John, the sons of thunder, to see Elijah? It's like, oh, we wanted to do what like Elijah did to those, those soldiers on the Samaritans. Uh, I just find that very interesting. So, Moses and Elijah are up there, back to our text. Then Peter says something. This is verse 5 in our passage. And Mark, excuse me, and Peter, and now let's move Luke's insertion in here. And Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him and said to Jesus, and here's Luke again, as the men were parting from him, now, for me, just kind of gra trying to grasp the scene. So we got Moses and Elijah and Jesus speaking together. They're speaking about Jesus' mission on the cross in Jerusalem. And now Moses and Elijah are starting to depart. So in some ways, we see Peter's motive for speaking a little bit more. And it sounds like either they were, they've been up on the mountain a long time, like in Gethsemane. They tried to pray with Jesus. They just fell asleep from fatigue. It's just a long time up there. Plus, when you climb up a mountain, you're exhausted, you're tired, you have a bit of fatigue. So they're in this kind of drowsy state, and they see all that's going on, and then Moses and Elijah start to depart. And that's why when Jesus, when Peter says, Rabbi, Matthew says, Lord, 
Luke says, Master. Maybe all three. He's just kind of, you know, uh, he's, he's trying to be persuasive, right? All the good things he can say. Rabbi, Lord, Master, the, the, the most supreme, whatever. It is good that we are here. If you wish, Matthew adds, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, remember, they're starting to leave when he says this. That makes more sense to me. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It is very interesting. So here we have our, th- our trio of witnesses seeing this supernatural event, and I believe that Peter senses both danger and opportunity because Jesus, uh, Peter has already said, oh, Lord, may it never be, you know, a private rebuke to Jesus. No, you don't need to go to the cross. There's another way around this. It seems like Peter is still on that same target. He's looking for an opportunity that I'm going to call crucifixion, circumvention, intention. <laughs> hey, since you're here, we don't need to go down to Jerusalem. Or if we do, let's just take the light show down there. Show everybody the Pharisees are going to see the sign that they've been waiting for. What's with the cross? I mean, in some ways, Peter just can't wrap his mind around it. Why should there be a crucifixion of the Messiah before we usher in the kingdom we're so excited about? I have to ask, so what kind of a kingdom would it be without the cross? What would it look like for unatoned sinners to usher in an eternal kingdom? It doesn't really solve the problem, right? Your sins are still on you. It would not be righteous and just because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the law says. The sin wages are unpaid. That's not a complete kingdom. Can't be. And so it's time for a rebuke, a divine rebuke to Peter. He's not just being stupid and impulsive. He's actually kind of suggesting an alternative to the cross again. Verse 7, I'm going to add Matthew. As he was still speaking, and a... Matthew says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. I find these details important because it's more of the Shekinah glory cloud than it is just a misty cloud, foggy cloud. A bright Shekinah glory type cloud overshadowed them, Luke says, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. That even builds the suspense, right? They're outside the cloud, and now they have to come into the office, like the principal's office, step into the cloud, And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Matthew adds, with whom I am well pleased. Sounds like that divine voice at the baptism, doesn't it? Sky opens up, dove descends. Uh, My chosen one, Luke says, listen to him. Now, what's interesting is I compare the Gospels. There's an exclamation point in Luke. Now, Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't think it has... Punctuation marks. So how they added the exclamation mark in Luke, I'm not completely sure about, but it's very fitting because this is not, oh, Peter, Peter, you're sleepy, you're impulsive, we know that. That's kind of a silly thing to say. No, this is, uh, listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him regarding what his mission is, going down to Jerusalem to be rejected and crucified. It was a divine, a second divine affirmation like the baptism, and John the Baptist is there again. So this is a rebuke, and suddenly they looked around and no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
I don't understand that. Poof. Things are kind of back to the mountaintop. Oh, that was a view. And yet that's going to be the thing that Peter remembers and writes about. Verse 9, going on. Dear. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So why keep it secret? We're getting close now. Two more to go. Why keep it secret? <clears throat> the crucifixion, the resurrection are yet to come. Don't spoil it. It's necessary. Prophecies must be fulfilled, right? Some of the elegance and beauty of the Scripture is that they are foretold and they are fulfilled. And there are many prophecies for, for the sake of righteousness and the credibility of those prophets that spoke them. They all have to come true. No shortcuts. They all have to come true. The path of pain must be followed. Jesus will be exalted, lifted up, but it will be on a cross, suffering unto death. The things to come will include this. There will be Hosanna to the highest. He is the king. That's a Davidic donkey. That's the cult of a donkey. Hey, here's another prophecy fulfilled. Let's lay down our coats and palm branches before him. The king has come to Jerusalem. Within a week, they're going to be saying, crucify him. Those kinds of things have to be fulfilled. And it's almost as if God has intended this tragic, the pinnacle of hope for the people of Israel with their misunderstanding of what the, who the Messiah is and what he will do. Now... He came to be crucified. And this is a certainty for us Christians today. The cross, it, 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 the cross is what saves us and purchases us and atones for our sins as a people and allows us to be with the holy and righteous God. It is necessary. And there's this, the tragedy and the sadness of how the Messiah was treated. There's more suffering and death to come. And yet, think back, the disciples are discouraged, but here's a little dose of glory to get you through. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, Matthew adds, and they did not recognize him. He has come, they didn't recognize him. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now Matthew really helps us here. Matthew says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, Jesus speaking. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Luke adds, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And that likely means even the other disciples. Kind of a burden, kind of a privilege. Later on, there's going to be arguments about who's the greatest, right? And in that argument... The three are probably going to say, well, of course we're the three greatest because we were on the mountain and we saw his glory. <laughs> Can't talk about that. Um, why is it important today? How we view Jesus matters. Um, if we view Jesus as many good things, uh, but good things but not complete things, we might regard him as keep him in the realm of the babe in the manger, the good physician, the counselor. Um, we might forget that the Lamb of God that he is, slain, is not also the Lion of Judah, the victor of death, of sin and death. And he's coming back on a white horse, and he's going to slay his enemies with his, 
his word. He's going to usher in that eternal kingdom. He's going to arrive on the clouds, and his kingdom will be consummated. This is yet to come. And uh, I, I encourage you to think about the awesome power and the glory of God on that mountaintop when you look at problems that seem bigger than you can handle. If you were in a, a, a Ukrainian right now, what the heck is Putin going to do next? If you had lived through uh, Germany or uh, France or Belgium in the, during the, the Nazi Holocaust, things are just overwhelmingly big. If you can look to God as being larger than any earthly circumstance and put your faith in him that he's got an outcome in store and his eternal kingdom is going to be glorious, then it helps us to negotiate our troubles. This is true of personal issues. If you're going through a bout of depression, can you look up to the heavens and see an almighty God who solves depression problems and sin problems? If it's a troubled marriage, if it's difficulty with children, difficulty in a workplace, yes, he's a good physician. He is the spotless lamb. But that atoning sacrifice is an act of the past and the Lord rules and reigns now at the right hand of the Father as king. He's in control of things. You can take your prayers to him and be assured that this glorious intercessor will answer your prayers and usher forth his kingdom. Jesus is king of kings, Lord of lords. He's the king of the mountains. He's the king of the cosmos, able to solve any big problem. And we are his people. May we worship and serve him. I want to end with going back to Peter. This is Peter's first epistle when he wrote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I hope that you see light slightly different now. I hope when you read through the Gospel of John and read the light, remember that Jesus glowed. His face glowed. His clothes glowed. He radiated his goodness and character out. And then finally, I want us to uh, recite a psalm. Go ahead and click all the way through. This is uh, from the NASB version. It's appropriate that we'd re why don't you remain seated so everybody can read it, but I want you to read it with me. I'm going to close with this psalm out of the Psalter. This is the songbook of God, and it mentions mountains again. Would you say it with me? I will raise my eyes to the mountains from where my help will... Excuse me. For where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Go ahead. Behold, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not beat down on you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil he will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time and forever. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you that you are the Lord of Lord, King of Kings. We look to you for assistance, for our help. We look to you to sustain our salvation. And Lord, we ask you to bless us as we continue to praise. And may we be world changers with your gospel. Use us as we go out. Lord, even use us today. Maybe we be ministers of, of prayer to one another. Help us to get to know each other better. And Lord, maybe even grant a small mountain climbing ministry to Philippi Church. Amen. <laughs>